Welcome to Season 2 of the Humor and Games Podcast, a podcast where we think about how all things funny are designed, experienced, and analyzed in games and play. My name is Mark Lajeunesse, and my co-producers are Scott DeYoung and Andre Zanescu. On this episode of the podcast, we talk about the silly and the serious. How can we use humor, play, and laughter to create social or political changes or to educate? When do humorous or playful statements land their laughs and moral punches, and where do these strategies fall short? We start the season off in contrast to the last. You may remember the game designer Narf from season one, who said that games have a hard time being funny. But this season, let's open with game designer and educator Karina Pop and her opinion on games. I think like most games are funny. I think like it would be easier for me to name a game like I don't think is funny in particular. Um, I And like my instinct is like to say like, oh, like frog fractions, like uh, how do you do it? Uh, how to fool boyfriend, like a game that like, oh, that's like a comedy game. Um, but when I, when I really like sat down to think about it, I think I would say like The Sims is is a game that's particularly funny to me it's like this perfect combination of like funny content like just funny writing or like funny things to do and then like this play space where you can do kind of silly and absurd things and then like the cherry on top like the most important thing to me is that like uh there's like a lot of bugs there's like a lot of room for like the system to mess mess up and like hilarious things to happen that weren't intended um it's like like in this golden area of, of funny for me but where does humor line up with activism or social change? When does a social impact game land? For Karina, the joke can help an activist or social message land as a rhetorical device that appeals to our emotions. I come from a background like of like, you know, growing up watching like The Daily Show and The Colbert Report and, and reading The Onion. Like a lot of my um, politics, like as a kid and my interest in like social justice came from reading and consuming humorous satirical content and so like i have a natural affinity for it and will advocate for that i think i think like you know there was within game studies and then like the people that would make games and do game studies not naming names had this idea of like oh i'm gonna make a game that has a system in it and it's like factually based and it's gonna convince somebody like you're gonna play around with this world and and it'll it'll um it'll be this argument for why you should believe this thing or think about this thing. And that's not really very successful and has the, the potential to backfire. Um, whereas humor is, is partially just kind of an, an emotional appeal and that kind of more like rhetorical device of appealing to somebody based on their feelings, I think is more effective, especially now in a world in which so many people are like basing their political opinions and views of the world on their feelings rather than like data or facts. I think it's much stronger to make a joke or um, kind of on, on the like related, but quite the opposite. I also think like simply making an empathetic appeal, like showing someone's perspective is effective. Um, being really like vulnerable and, and showing like the life of a person. And then on the opposite side of that coin to me is humor, like thinking of something like, um, like it's barely a game, but, like the thoughts and prayers flash game um, that is a direct response to the, the very common uh, occurrence of mass shootings in America um, when politicians or other leaders, leaders will say something like, oh, thoughts and prayers with the victims. And so in this game, you just, you just press a button that produces thoughts and prayers meant to be like, this is useless. Like without action, this is useless. 
But if Thoughts and Prayers doesn't totally work as a game, what might the strategy be for making a stronger link between the humorous aspect of the game and the social statement? Karina got us thinking about holistic humor and using all the parts that make up a game. The things that I think are funny in a really like holistic way that like are, are incorporating everything in the game together uh, to create humor um, or to create something that like you may not describe as humorous, but gives you that feeling that sort of like that traditional like 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 um, like definition of humor is being like when you have an expectation and then that expectation is like subverted. Um, there's I find it interesting to lean into that in games because so much of games are like built around this idea of like players having a grasp on the expectations of the system and the interaction. Um, and I like the idea of like playing around with like overturning that and like not meeting a player's expectation. And I personally find that to be hilarious, I guess. Um, yeah, I want to use that in kind of a, a meta way. So I, I worked on a game a while ago called Political Dolphin, um, which was like a point and click adventure game uh, that was about a dolphin who wanted global warning, warming to happen because the dolphin said that there would be more water in the ocean to swim in. Um, and then all the humans that the, the dolphin is trying to convince throughout this game are like, but dolphin, the, the ocean will turn to acid. Like you, you will not like this. And it was about that very like meta idea of like, the dolphin's opinions aren't really based on reality. Um, and then in the end you find out like the dolphin is paid off by oil lobbies or something. Um, so it's, I don't know, I guess like, I, I personally think humor in the context of something that is trying to make a change in the world is really strong, I guess. Like, I don't know. I, I think that those are the best kinds of games for change. Thinking of humor and design holistically is really convincing, but even Karina sounds a bit unsure, though. Why might that be? Well, Narf's perspective that games have a hard time being funny has a long history to support it, especially if we think about games with a purpose, like social impact games, educational games, or training games. We talk about the lack of humor or the lack of successful humor in these kinds of games in a conversation between Dr. Carly Kosurek and our very own Andre A. Zanescu Esquire. Often, like, the games that are being used in that way I've written about, right, in this very kind of, like, training games kind of way are often like really humorless, right? Like there's like zero room for laughter in those. Um, and sometimes it's because they're training you about something like really horrible, right? Like they're giving you a Title IX training and this kind of like lightly gamified uh, interface. Um, and like nobody wants to make jokes about that because it's horrible. I, I hope nobody wants to make jokes about it. Let's say that. Um, but I, I do think like, and, and I think there's actually a specific tone, a humor tone that I associate with training that's like, I'm sure everyone has encountered at some point where they're like, remember kids, right? Like it's this really kind of like cheesy, ebullient, like, you know, it, it's like almost like it feels like it's going to tell you a dad joke, right? Um, and I, I think like you get some of that, but I don't necessarily think it's productive, right? I think sometimes it's it's window dressing, like it's like a costume, like we're like, we're fun, we're trying to make it look fun. And I think like even calling some of these games as the equivalent, some of these things games is the equivalent of that. We're like, they're not actually games, right? Like there's like nothing like playful or joyful or voluntary about this experience. So like, if it's, if you can't walk away, is it ever actually a game? No, that's super interesting. And it brings up issues too concerning like edutainment or like these are, you know, we're going to include game mechanisms or fun mechanisms uh, for other purposes? Do, do you find that like humor in edutainment games 
is even actually humor or is it part of that window I actually, dressing? I think sometimes they nail it, right? Like I, I think about um if you go like the Carmen San Diego franchise, I think actually does so good where it has all these like I love all the little villains or like little silly cartoon dudes and like it's super fun. And like I think that's a game that people genuinely enjoy playing, right? Like that's a, a franchise that's been rebooted in a really creative way. I actually had my students play um there's an interactive adventure on Netflix that's a Carmen San Diego under the new one where she like helps you know, repatriate art and stuff like this, which is super cool. And the students did really badly at it. And then I took a pic, a screenshot from that and made it like the icon for the class discord. And they're like, did you just, did you just put the game we failed? Like that we have to look at it every time we do this? I'm like, yeah. And, you know, I'm like kind of messing with them a little, but it's also like funny that we as a class played this game made for children and just like failed abysmally, right? Like, um, and so I think like humor is great when you're like softening how something feels. Like I don't want... You're not going to learn if you're like angry and frustrated about your encounter with this thing. But if it's like a little silly and the stakes are like clearly kind of like a little squishy, like they're not, you're not going to like, you don't like, there's no permadeath in Carmen San Diego, right? Like you can just start playing again. It's fun. Um, I think that's like, you know, humor again, like it can be a way to soften these things or like make clear that the stakes aren't overly high. It can also help you like make clear that you're not taking it too seriously or like that the game itself knows that you're kind of um, setting up a silly scenario. It's like, yeah, this is totally artificial. That doesn't make it like unfun. Um, and like, maybe you'll learn some stuff, but you know, maybe not. It's fine either way. And so, yeah, I, I think there's room for humor in these. I think it needs to be smart. I think a lot of times things that are, edutainment are unfunny or un or like unplayable because like they don't take children seriously like they're just like it's for kids let's make it crappy and like kids are actually very sophisticated consumers in some ways and i think deserve to be respected as such but what about when we don't want to take the edge off the experience with humor what if humor can provide a different kind of seriousness in its playfulness and what if that kind of humor can provide an altogether different kind of fun we turn to two scholars at Tampere University in Finland, Dr. Jakob Stenros, scholar of play, transgression, and Nordic LARP, that is live-action role-playing, and Jamie McDonald, a comedian and prolific Nordic LARPer. Here's Dr. Stenros on Nordic LARP. Uh, yes, so one of the key areas that I'm concentrating on is, is, is Nordic LARP, um, the kind of live-action role-playing done in Sweden, uh, Finland, Denmark, and Norway, or at least that's where that tradition started. Uh, since then, uh, this kind of a tradition has, has, has uh, broadened and, and now it's fairly international. So there are participants in this tradition from around Europe and ar from around the world. But, uh, but in some ways, at, at least sort of if we view this, this tradition as, as like, a, 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 like a tradition of art, its roots lie in the Nordic countries, even though it has since been uh, sort of cross-pollinated with a number of other places. In the Nordic LARP tradition, um, uh, people assume uh, characters, they play characters in a fictional setting, and these fictional settings can be sort of fantasy or cyberpunk, but uh, and as, as sort of historically tabletop role-playing games from which LARPs uh, sort of developed from, those were big genres. But, uh, but um, since, the, since the 90s, uh, in the Nordic LARP tradition, people have also been uh sort of interested in many other genres as well and many other types of works as well uh, looking at at, uh, at sort of political works uh, looking at contemporary settings uh, looking at historical periods um in a way 
uh, using it as a sort of so sociological fictions, uh, looking at, at groups of humans in, in, in different kinds of settings and, and, and sort of finding joy and meaning in those kinds of explorations. And where does humor come into it? There's all kinds of humor in LARPs. I mean, obviously there are LARPs that are about humor. They're not super uh, common, uh, but but sort of, but they are, they are something that does exist. Where um, where where the the whole point of the LARP is to is to is to have fun and and to to maybe produce something inspired by, for example, sitcoms. One thing that I remember is is Keskika Chronica, the middle-aged chronicle, where 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 there were three games. One was set at a funeral. One was set at the fortieth anniversary a birthday party and one was a wedding and and everybody was playing sort of people from the same family and and people were just trying to act in the most outrageous fashion in in this family setting trying to get the other players to laugh not the characters but the players to sort of flood out and and and, and burst out laughing what the what in sort of the British theater tradition would be called corpsing where sort of you break character and start laughing and then while people are laughing Sort of the play would stop and then once people have composed themselves they would continue doing this sitcom uh, type type of thing but this is this is fairly uncommon but of course many LARP traditions have have maybe uh, like party LARPs a LARP that you would have like a, at a Christmas party or, or or some other setting that is not taken as seriously where 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 there is the po whole point is to is to is to be humorous and what happens when the humor and serious aspects of Nordic LARP come together I mean, it is both serious and playful. Uh, I mean, play is play can be very, very serious. So it's not serious games in the in the sense that that it would tie into to sort of the serious game movements where 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 we're trying to learn through games or or um, or teach things through games. But uh, but I mean, people do take uh, those uh, role playing games very seriously. So, but but it is it is it is for recreation and for artistic purposes. It is something that people find deeply meaningful. It may not always be fun, but it is in some way uh, people are impacted uh, by these by these um, uh, events, and 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 sometimes it's difficult to uh, put into words why it is that you do it because it doesn't fall into the usual uh, fun type activities that that people associate with games. But maybe it is fun, but fun of a different kind. Here we turn to Jamie McDonald on a definition of what is called type two fun. We have this thing called type two fun. Type two fun is when it's not fun, but it's fun. Uh, so you're having a terrible time. You're in the rain. It is cold. Um, you're, uh, your character is miserable. Um, they've just lost everything that they uh, held dear and the future looks terrible. And as a character, you're having a, the worst time you can possibly imagine. And as a player, you're just like, yeah, <laughs> it's great. So just to, to clarify, you put someone in a, a situation that across the board is just sounds awful, but for a player, because you get to kind of engage with it, it's, it's a wonderfully humorous and, and enjoyable time. Yes, yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, uh, you know, and we have, this means that we have in the Nordic LARP scenes slightly interesting conventions about playing to, um, playing to get yourself in more trouble. So there's a less, often there's a less kind of competitive edge with, um, with the LARPs in the Nordic scene, 
Whereas like many other LARPs have people who would like, their characters would like to end up on top. And in a Nordic LARP, you're more likely to end up with people who go like, how can I get to the bottom in the most interesting way? Because that will collectively allow us to tell a story that is uh, more interesting. And that's sort of a convention. Playing in this kind of race to the bottom is in itself a bit incongruous. We're so used to playing to win that there's a built-in joke in the chasing of failure because it might tell a better story or lead to more gameplay possibilities. There might be something shared there between us. We're looking not for success in the fantasy of play, but the failures and the dark places where laughter and humor can also be found. Here we consider the idea of dark satire with Dr. Stenros. But then there are LARPs that are sort of super uh, dark satire. And these are fairly common in, in the Nordic countries uh, or, or in the Nordic, Nordic art tradition. Uh, one classic example of this is Panopticor, uh, which, is, which is set in a um, media agency or an advertising agency where, where the players are uh, playing people in a sort of super cynical people working in an advertising agency like five minutes into the future. Um, and then, then more and more outrageous uh, advertising campaigns come in and then the players create them and, 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 at, at, and, and they are at the same time trying to create ridiculous but still sort of within, within the fiction believable campaigns and also while also sort of uh, battling with the, with the office office politics sort of trying to, to, to sort of to get the promotion and push your, your uh, uh, competitors down and, and, and doing these kinds of things. So very much sort of, sort of a, a commentary on contemporary work like office life, sort of the capitalistic world that we live in, those kinds of things. Another example of that might be a, a LARP from last, last fall uh, that was playing in Denmark called The Future is Straight, which was about uh, conversion camps for, for gays, lesbians, and trans people, uh, which was, which was uh, run by, by queer designers. And, and, and a significant number of the players were also queer. And it was sort of, sort of playing on all of those dark and hurtful things that have been thrown into queer people's faces over the years and sort of getting to play with those in this very, very dark satire. We turn again to Jamie McDonald for more in-depth look at the future of straight, the meanings that emerge from dark satire, and how laughter is different than humor. The, the LARP was set at a fictional, um, in a fictional environment uh, of a society that was a little bit different from ours, uh, where uh, gender roles and, and, and sexuality uh, were much more policed and much more normatized. And uh, these, it was played by adults playing young people and the camp counselors, as it were, at a uh, conversion camp. And so I was actually playing the director of the camp, uh, which means I got to set, sort of set a lot of the tone. And I ended up bringing a lot of like Marcus Aurelius and reading aloud all this stoicism uh, which was, it was just the darkest comedy I could possibly think of, like standing in front of a bunch of players who I know are queer. And we're all like, almost everybody who plays this game is queer. Almost everybody who plays this game has heard all of these things said to them at some point in their lives about well, why can't you just, you know, suck it up and, and just be normal kind of thing. And what we did was we, we kind of leaned really hard into that and played it so that it was um, like parody. 
parody of the of the crappy things. So how did that ex- I mean experience happen for you, but also other players? Like, what was the tone kind of coming out of a game like that? I mean, the the LARP worked really well, I think, because everybody played it fairly straight. Uh, oh, what a terrible pun! But everybody played it as though they were really in the situation, and it really mattered. And actually, during the LARP, most of uh, most of the people who were playing the staff would just play a c- couple of scenes. Then we would go into the staff room. We would kind of yell and cry together because it was so horrible and then go back in and, and keep playing with everybody. But the people who were playing the camp goers, the, the kids who were being you know converted or being told whatever kind of, um, uh, whatever arguments they were being told, um, they, when they weren't in front of the camp counselors, they were having a great time, of course, because in the fiction, this was then, when most of them as characters had ever met another queer kid. So, I mean, it was an absurd situation that you take all these kids who are supposed to not be queer and they've, they've, most of them have never even met another queer kid. And then you put them all in camp together and expect nothing to happen. So they were having a, a, a great time together when they weren't crying. I think we could like think about like laughter as a social um, as a as a kind of social phenomenon, um, and it's great when we la- we laugh at uh, something that is funny. But most of the times when we laugh, it's not at something that is funny or a joke. There are many more reasons to laugh, and they are mostly um, to communicate meaning. When we talk, we laugh and we uh, laugh at other people's speech, often just to communicate that we understand each other. Um, so, but that's, that's, that's laughter and that's not necessarily, necessarily humor, but something that I think, um, especially like in, in a minority space, but also in, in a game space is that the shared humor or sharing a joke requires that you share a lot of other things. Um, you have to share some values. You have to share an understanding of what is going on. And you have to also agree on uh, the tone of the room. And you have to agree what is going to be, um, I, I don't want to get into the benign violation theory because that's not my favorite theory. Um, but we, you have to kind of agree what is a good um, way to break the norm. and what is not a acceptable way to break the norm. And if everybody's on the same page, uh, then you can have an awful lot of exploration and play and fun together. And it works very well also in, in games and in LARP. You know, it's the same. If somebody is griefing uh, while everybody else is trying to have a good time, then it's no good. But if everybody's griefing, then that is the good time. Here, Jamie is gesturing towards the communal aspect of humor. What language of laughter and what collective humor emerges out of what we already share? We'll visit this idea of collective humor more in the next episode. But to round out our podcast for today, we return to the beginning with Karina Pop on thinking about the power of parody in the context of the wider gaming industry and game design. How might we use humor to be more self-critical and self-reflexive of the games we make and play? I think it's it's especially making parody that is more biting like like you said like there 
they're like you could see a grand theft auto like having some kind of masturbation joke like not like directly showing it but like having some kind of um reference to it that's supposed to be like kind of like body and make you laugh um but or like you you see like i mean it, a, a number of games that are are meant to be like you know your your duke nukem's like making fun of uh existing genre or something but it's always kind of like in good fun ribbing i guess um i think that there's more room for an independent developer to make games that are more self-critical of the industry um when i i got my master's thesis at the nyu game center my thesis was on parody in games um and part of it was i, I made a game that i called candy crunch um that was basically you're you're playing a match three game making candy uh, like like candy crush um but eventually the candies disappear they they stop coming and what you have to do is essentially go into this factory and and make the candy yourself so like you have to go through all these steps to like uh create like the candy juice to like mold the candy and then after like five minutes you have one candy that then goes to the screen and now you can you know build up some more candy to get to play the game again um which was very much like me trying to comment on um like play as labor like the the idea of like a lot of like free-to-play games simply being a form of uh labor like it's less their existence is less about having this fun experience for the player and more about like getting people hooked onto it so that the company can make money off of it um so i i like that's not something that i can see flying necessarily at a larger company um and i think it's useful um not that like i've made anything i would necessarily say is particularly useful but i think it's a space that is is good for like the industry to be critical of itself and, and for artists to be critical of this larger industrial the industrial gaming complex uh, that we live in <laughs> and that's it for today's episode we'll see you next week in the industrial gaming complex for another episode of the humor and games podcast thanks for listening Thanks to Karina Pop, Dr. Carly Kosurek, Dr. Yako Stenros, and Jamie McDonald for their contributions to this podcast. And be sure to check out our full interviews with them wherever you get your Humor and Games podcast. The Humor and Games podcast is produced in conjunction with TAG, the Technoculture, Arts, and Games Institute out of Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. 